according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me in Luke 13 once again. We're wrapping up the last details out of episode 20 and uh, getting ready for episode 21, which will be not next week, but the following week. Remember, next week I'm in Spokane and uh, will not be teaching this class. Are you still having a prayer time next week? Is that the plan or not? No prayer time next week. Okay. Then you got the whole morning off. And uh, La Rosa will be teaching the evening session one week from today. So good news there. All right. Well, this will wrap up the last of our uh, material here in Luke 13. We'll be ready for the next episode. But a couple of things I do want to really emphasize. And uh, I don't know. I expect it'll take the entire hour. Maybe not. But uh, I want to talk about desolation and uh, real other cheerful topics like that, you know. We can have a biblical understanding for it and a recognition of what the Father was accomplishing when he desolated Jerusalem and he allowed it to be desolate in 70 A.D. And even prior to that, he allowed it to be desolate in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. He has allowed it to continue desolate. It will be desolate again in the tribulation as uh, as defiled by Antichrist and the armies of uh, Antichrist have Jerusalem surrounded and even uh, the Gentiles plunder Jerusalem uh, until Christ returns. And so it does become a very important study, not only historically, biblically, but also prophetically as we anticipate what is yet to come in the end times. And hopefully we'll be able to have a proper dispensational perspective for how we can have um, compassion for the Jewish people as they undergo their divine discipline. But more importantly, we can develop an evangelistic heart to want to see, uh, like any other unbeliever, we want to see the Jewish people come to faith in Christ. And so I think studies like we have today on the desolation, or if you ever get into Daniel and uh, Revelation, you study the abomination that causes desolation in terms of the uh, the situation there, then maybe a... Uh, motivational class like today will help to lay a framework that will give you the mindset that you need to approach such things. So anyway, if none of that makes sense, don't worry about it because we haven't prayed yet. None of that was sanctified. Let's take time for silent prayer, making sure that we are filled with the Spirit, humble under the authority of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together. And Father, we ask for your guidance upon our study today. Uh, We just really have a a couple of final points to make here as we wrap up this morning's outline. So uh, it may not be uh, all that long or all that complicated. And yet, Father, we we recognize that there are issues in focus here that are uh, truly large, large issues that go back even to the the foundation of the of uh, the Jewish nation. So, Father, uh, open our eyes to these realities. Uh, also, Father, help us to maintain the proper perspective uh, that we don't uh, plunge into any false theology or any uh, false approach to Scripture. And so, Father, open our eyes. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's uh, just once again fix our bearings. Uh, We're looking at the second part of this episode, 
where episode 20 was basically broken down into verses 22 through 30 for the first half, dealing with uh, the question, are there only a few that are being saved? And then the second half, where the Pharisees are warning him in verse 31 that, uh, that Herod wants to kill him. They say, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And for me, on my part, I'm pretty well convinced that this is a fraud, that uh, uh, there was no truth to this, that uh, they were lying in desiring to get him out of Galilee, out of uh, Perea, and into the Judean region there where they had more uh, power, they had more authority, they had an opportunity to... Um, to lay hands on him, which is ultimately what they wanted. They wanted to kill him. Wasn't Herod wanted to kill him? They wanted to kill him. And uh, I think the uh, the uh, scriptures make that pretty clear. Um, in fact, did we look at Luke twenty three last time? I don't recall. If not, we'll glance at it real quickly today. Like I say, we uh, we have an entire hour, and I don't know that the points left in the outline uh, will take that entire time. Herod Antipas was ruler of Galilee and Perea. And so the idea that Jesus is in danger simply because he's in Perea is illogical. It does not make sense. He has just spent the, the greater part of three years in Galilee, see. And, and it was the same Herod that was the Tetrarch of Galilee was the Tetrarch of Perea. Those were his two regions. It'd be like, um, you know, somebody saying, uh, you're... Uh, you're under, there's a, an arrest warrant out for you. There's a warrant for your arrest. There's a federal warrant for your arrest. And uh, federal agents are, uh, are looking for you all across this country. So you better flee, get out of this country, and go to Hawaii. Well, problem there being is Hawaii is also part of the United States jurisdiction. And, and fleeing the, the, the lower 48 and going off to Alaska or Hawaii or somewhere... Uh, or you know, even overseas territories, does not get you beyond the reach of federal uh, marshals, say U.S. marshals. So does that make sense? Does that illustration help? The idea of warning Jesus that he's in danger because he's in Perea doesn't match with the fact that he just spent three years in Galilee and it's the same Herod that's in charge of, of Galilee. So uh, ultimately, the, the warning does not make sense. It also doesn't make sense from, this, from the standpoint of the fact that Herod didn't want to kill him. Herod, uh, even uh, later on in the uh, night in which he was betrayed and the day in which he was crucified, that morning he had a, an interview with Jesus. And uh, we read about it in Luke 23. Remember, Pilate didn't want to kill him, so he sent him over to Herod. Herod didn't want to kill him, so he sent him back to Pilate. All right. And in, in fact, the information here in Luke 23 says that Herod has been very eager to, uh, to see Jesus for, for quite some time now. Uh, we read in, in Luke 23, 8, uh, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. I mean, yeah, if you're going to be a tyrant and you find out that somebody in your kingdom can do miraculous things, well then, yeah, bring him here. I want to see what he can do, kind of a thing. And so he questioned him at some length and he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And uh, so Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So it was just kind of fun and games. It was fun and games to Herod. Yeah, okay, put a, put a, put a robe on him. He says he's king. Okay, let's play, mock him, have fun, send him back to Pilate kind of a thing. So with that glimpse in Luke 23 of, of Herod here, it uh, 
tends to argue against uh, the truthfulness of what the Pharisees are saying. And I think all the other context of the Pharisees here at this point indicates that they, uh, they're not legitimate in this. Uh, nevertheless, Jesus has a message for Herod, that fox. And uh, whether he's speaking to Herod directly or to Herod and Satan both simultaneously, I think, is debatable. Um, but the uh, basic message is that he's not running from his problems. He is going to die, but he's going to die in the Father's timetable for the Father's purpose. And in the meantime, each and every day that he's still on this earth, he's going to go where the Father wants him. He's going to say what he's supposed to say. He's going to do what he's supposed to do, including remaining fully engaged in the angelic conflict. See, the longer Jesus can uh, continue to function, more demons he can expel from uh, from uh, human beings, more demons that he can confine into the abyss. And you can imagine the uh, the war of attrition that's taking place here because Satan is losing uh, some of his most active demonic powers uh, every day that Jesus continues active in his ministry. And uh, in any event, the... Uh, message that he taught we went through last week and you can review that if you were not here moving on now to the final issue jesus lament over jerusalem this is a lament a lament is a sanctified complaint it is a complaint that identifies struggles and submits them to the uh, to yahweh submits them to the lord for his gracious provision his lament over jerusalem is similar to jeremiah's and i do remember that we Looked at Lamentations 5 last week and compared that. And he's going to deliver it at least once more before his death in Matthew 23. Now, the fact that it occurs here in Luke 13 and that it also is recorded there in Matthew 23 tells you that he preached this message at least twice. I can prove that he preached it twice. I believe, though, that by inference, he probably preached it a number of times in between. A number of times from now till next March, he continued to uh, lament over Jerusalem and to uh, wake people up. You keep in mind, uh, to the Jewish people of this day, Jerusalem was everything. And, and for those that were kingdom-minded, they were waiting to throw off Rome and exalt Jerusalem and rule the world from Jerusalem. And that day will come. So when he starts lamenting, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and uh, talking about the temple being destroyed and not one stone being left standing upon another, um, that uh, certainly would, would get their attention. Jerusalem is guilty of killing or stoning the uh, prophets and the apostles. Of course, Jesus Christ himself is the greatest of the prophets, and he is also the apostle and high priest of our confession. God's will is one thing, but Jerusalem's negative volition is another. And you have to handle both. And uh, I'm not going to plunge into a lot of detail. Hey, this is why we ran out of time last week, because I got off on a rabbit trail and started to describe this. But notice, you have to at least acknowledge verse 34. It is in your Bible. And um, Arminians uh, may not like it. Calvinists may not like it. Uh, and they both find ways to explain it uh, to make it least dislikable. Uh, but it is what it is. And I think if we can relax about it and understand it, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. So there's the will of God. That's Jesus Christ reflecting the will of the Father in this because he says nothing that the Father did not uh, give for him to say. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you would not. You would not. And the same verb, fellow, that speaks of their will 
is the same verb thelo that speaks of God's will, both being featured in this verse. So there's the will of God, there's the will of man, and there they are. And our finite mind, of course, gets twisted around like a bunch of taffy sometimes, <laughs> trying, to, trying to grapple these issues, that God has a will and man has a will. And the reconciliation between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man has been a puzzle, not only just in amongst uh, Calvinists and Arminians, that's a, that's a fairly recent expression of it, but going back to uh, Augustine and even prior to Augustine, going back to Old Testament times and rabbinical debates and uh, any number of situations, Greek philosophers, uh, not from a biblical standpoint, but from a totally pagan standpoint, Greek philosophers uh, debated the issues of, of uh, fatalism versus uh, free will. In other words, have the gods, like Zeus and that crowd, have they destined everything to take place and we're simply puppets playing it out? Or do human beings have a choice? Do we make decisions? Do we face consequences for decisions? See, So, I mean, it is a, an issue that's not only a biblical question to relate, but even pagans have understood that there's a, there's a puzzle there that you want to wrap your minds around. And I think ultimately, why? why? Why would that be? Because before humans were around, the angels had to deal with the, the same question. God's sovereignty and the, and the will of Satan or the will of angels and, and things like that. So it's been an issue that goes back even prior to man. And uh, it's, it's pre-Adam in this whole deal. And so no wonder then that fallen angels that motivate every false religion on this planet, you know, fallen angels that would influence the pagan philosophers and all of that, um, fallen angels that promote the karma of, uh, of uh, Hinduism or the, the fatalism of Islam and all the rest, uh, that they would use the very same struggles themselves to try to gain control over people. Well... In any event, we, uh, like I said last week, and I'll say it again today, we're not going to solve all of this in today's class, but I do think, though, that we've done a very excellent job with it in our soteriology classes here lately in uh, dealing, with, uh, dealing with that very issue. All right, so God has a will. Jerusalem has a will. God wants them to be faithful. They want to reject him. All right, so what happens then? See, is, is the purpose of God thwarted? Not at all. Because, of course, he understands all this. His omniscience takes into account every rebellion, every wrong decision, every sin, every human failure. And he's ultimately not uh, overruled or thwarted. His plan is accomplished despite every angelic and human wrong decision that gets made. Nevertheless, there are consequences. See, here's the key. God does not overrule and force them to do what he wants. He allows them to do what they want, and then he applies the discipline accordingly. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. See, as a consequence, see, the will of God encompasses volition, and it has blessings for obedience and disciplines for disobedience. And here we see it. Your house is left to you desolate. I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this is his message, which gets us now to points three and four, where we're going to spend our time today. The desolation of Jerusalem is a common prophetic theme. In fact, it goes back to the foundation of the Jewish nation. It goes back to the promises of the, the cycles of discipline, Leviticus chapter 26. So join me there. There's two key verses we're going to look at, but ultimately the chapter in its entirety is... Uh, is uh, 
an excellent one that believers ought to pay attention to. Particularly because it helps you to orient towards Israel as the covenant earthly nation. And uh, because it highlights the fact that the United States of America is not the covenant earthly nation. All right. I mean, we can sing God bless America. But there's no Bible verse that demands him to do so. All right. The closest we can find is we can claim under Genesis chapter 12 that as we bless the Jewish people, God will bless us. And if we curse the Jewish people, God will curse us. So there you go. Now you understand my foreign policy and domestic policy. And <laughs> it is what it is. And interestingly enough, and, and people get all kinds of mad at me, but um, God doesn't care. Show me a verse. Whether we are free market capitalism or European socialism or Chinese communist. That is not biblically mandated for, for an earthly nation. And uh, God chose one earthly nation, gave them a law upon which to live under. He gave no such law to any other nation on this planet, including us. See, so there you go. Some people think I hate socialism or what, what have you. It doesn't matter. I'm waiting for Christ to come back. He's the one that's going to have perfect government. In the meantime, will our nation be blessed or cursed for our economic uh, structure? Will we be blessed or cursed for our uh, different things? No. The standard in Genesis 12 is how we orient to the Jewish people. That's the only thing stipulated in Genesis chapter 12 as far as that goes. All right. Anyway, enough on that side trip. Leviticus 26. This is, uh, if you want to think of it, this is the Magna Carta. This is the Constitution. This is a, a wonderful chapter that outlines uh, how it is that Israel will either line up for their blessings or line up for their disobedience. And so you can kind of see uh, good news in the first 13 verses and, um, and different things there about not making idols and uh, observing the Sabbath and revering the sanctuary and walking in the statutes and so forth. Then there are blessings for that. See, And, uh, of course... We can follow it as a pattern or a type. If, if our laws reflect God's laws, then we've got some good laws. If our laws don't reflect God's laws, then, you know, you can understand that they're not, God's not going to exactly be impressed with, with laws that are inconsistent with what he gave to Israel. Nevertheless, uh, the guarantees of rains in their seasons and uh, land yielding its produce, trees of the field bearing fruit, uh, agricultural blessings and, and all the rest. They're not our promises. They're Israel's promises. We want to be clear on that. Peace in the land. Israel's promise, not ours. And uh, different things. Eliminate harmful beasts from the land. If you think that only applies to zoological creatures, um, evaluate once again whether or not there could be an application in terms of the, uh, the thugs and the gang mentality of what, uh, what rules our streets and what rules our cities. Uh, do we, in fact, have wild beasts in the land? In any event, you will chase your enemies. They will fall before you by the sword. So you have military victory. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase ten thousand. Your enemies will fall before you by the sword. Tremendous military victories on a scale unheard of. 
where you win the military engagement that, militarily speaking, you should have lost. See, if you look at armaments and tactics and uh, geography and other things, you can make a very good case that the Nazis were in the best position militarily to win World War II. Well, wars aren't won militarily, are they? Sovereignty takes over, doesn't it? Jesus Christ controls history. Anyway, these are all the good things. And yet, notice, um, moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, verse 11, my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people, Jewish people, Israel, Old Testament. This is their earthly covenant relationship with Yahweh, not the United States of America. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So Israel is God's nation, not us. Then verse 14. <laughs> A great big old but. Right? Right there. But if you do not obey me. Now keep in mind, when you have a passage like this that has a big if followed by a great big but and followed by another if, and there's two consequences, blessings and cursings. Recognize right here, you're talking about a conditional passage. Entirely conditional. If on the one hand, but if on the other hand. All right, And a conditional chapter like this does not overrule the unconditional passages that establish their eternal position. You understand that? Abrahamic covenant is unconditional, and this doesn't thwart any of that. The, the, uh, the Palestinian land grant is unconditional. This doesn't thwart that. The Davidic covenant is unconditional. This doesn't thwart that. The uh, new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31, is unconditional, and this doesn't thwart that. So I think that prompts a lot of confusion as well. The land is eternally theirs, unconditional. Whether they enjoy the benefits of the land... <laughs> is very conditional. And for seasons of discipline, they will be swept away into captivity. For 70 years, they live in Babylon and they don't enjoy the benefits of the land. Uh, so it's still their land, but for the moment, because of God's discipline, they don't have the capacity to appreciate its blessings. And as a matter of fact, maybe they, uh, they'll come under some... Uh, Philistine subjugation or they'll come under some Ammonite subjugation or the, during the period of the judges they were constantly being uh, dominated by neighboring folks or Assyrians or Babylonians or Greeks or Persians or Romans. See, it's still their land. To this day it's their land. Even though there's Muslims sitting on most of it. It's still their land. Eternally is, eternally will be. They don't presently enjoy the blessings of that land as a consequence of their divine discipline but eternally and ultimately, it's theirs. God cannot lie. And his promise to Abraham, his promise to David, are unconditional, eternal promises. So, now the consequences of disobedience. And from 14 down on, notice there are cycles of discipline. Different pastors uh, outline either five or six or different ways to structure this. But a nation will go through warning after warning after warning. Each warning gets worse. Each discipline gets harder. Each chance to wake up and, and turn it around uh, passes by, and at each stage, it's kind of like church discipline, at each stage, if repentance takes place, then the discipline can stop and they can go back into a blessing mode again. So, uh, if you do not obey me, do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I, in turn, will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror how about that? Terrorism in the Bible, right there. 
consumption, fever, that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. And you find out that your agricultural uh, wealth is uh, not supporting your own people, but supporting your enemies. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. Defeat on the battlefield. And those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. You're scared for no reason, but you're running away anyway because you're scared. And this is simply first cycle. All right. You think our nation has passed this step? Okay. Now, see, here's the difference. Again, this is not the United States of America. This is Israel. And yet we see historically the cycles of this chapter played out in biblical Gentile nations. We see God destroy the Assyrians, destroy the Babylonians, destroy the Persians, destroy the Greeks. We see the pattern unfold as these cycles are played out in Gentile nations around Israel. But what's the difference? Israel's promised an eternal destiny and a restoration, even if he wipes them out. Even if he destroys their temple and leaves them without a Davidic throne for 2,000 years, they still have a future Davidic throne and a future temple. But no Gentile nation can claim such promises with, I believe, only two exceptions. I I do believe that, that Ammon and Moab have a future. And they have a future simply because they are cousins. They are Abrahamic in a sense. They are descendants of Lot, and Abraham gave Lot the land grant of his choice as a subdivision of his own land grant. And the promises are that Moab and Ammon will have a future. They'll be spared from Antichrist in the tribulation. They will be places of worship in the millennial kingdom. Imagine that. Ammon and Moab. Can you imagine? So, other than those two quasi-exceptions, there's no other Gentile nation that's promised a future restoration, see? Certainly not our nation. All right. I don't want to take the bulk of our time and and read this entire thing, but you can, uh, and there's other teaching that's out there, I'm sure you can lay hands on. But let's just focus in on verses 31 and 32, because this is where the desolation occurs. I will lay waste your cities as well and will make your sanctuaries desolate. There's our term, and this is the absolute destruction of what, uh, what is in view. I will not smell your soothing aromas. Not that he can't, but he will not. See, it's like when he stops hearing your prayers. It's not that he can't hear your prayers, it's that he does not hear your prayers. When, uh, for example, your iniquities have created a barrier between you and God, and I will not listen when you cry out, I will not hear. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. Yeah, boy, that sure has played out in the late last 2,000 years of, of, uh, of history. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. And functionally, they've been scattered since Roman times. And until very recently, they're, uh, you know, they remain scattered. They've started to return since uh, the 1940s. But um, anyway... We'll talk about that as well when we get into future prophetic studies. All right, so there's the theme there. And recognize, recognize that for what it is. Now, Israel's in the land today. Does that mean prophecies are being fulfilled? We want to be clear on that, okay? Because the, uh, the Old Testament talks about two regatherings. One is in unbelief. The second is in faith when Jesus Christ sends forth his angels and regathers all of Israel into the land for the millennial kingdom. All right? And it will be by angelic transport, as the Bible says. 
uh, and they will not leave one Jew behind. So that's how we know that the current uh, nation of Israel in the land is not the fulfillment of the second regathering. It's still the first regathering. It's the regathering in unbelief. It's in the, re, it's in the regathering that rejects the Messiahship of Jesus Christ by and large on a national basis. It is that political entity that will sign the covenant with Antichrist that will uh, allow him to then come in and defile their temple at that point. So it is what it is. And that's uh, when, when folks ask me, well, how can we be a blessing to the Jewish people? Get them saved. <laughs> Give them the gospel. How can it be a blessing to any people? See, the, the, what's, the, what's the final phrase of that Abrahamic covenant? In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So instruct them about the greater son of David that is providing worldwide blessings. All right. First Kings 9, 8. First Kings chapter 9. What's happening in First Kings chapter 9? Well, in chapter 8, Solomon's building and dedicating the temple. And in chapter 9, he's giving them a follow-up message. And uh, imagine, I mean, they spent years building this temple. By the time it was built, it was, uh, I, I expect, it was the uh, priciest structure on the planet. I don't know that there was a... Uh, a facility that had the, the gold or the precious metal value or the wealth uh, built in more so than Solomon's temple. And so it's done. It's a thing of beauty. It's a thing of wealth. It's a, it's a thing of, uh, uh, I mean, think about the, the wealth and beauty of Satan described there in Ezekiel 28 with all the gems and all the wealth and all the pride and all the glory and all the beauty. That was this temple. All right. Every precious stone was its covering and all the, all the uh, wealth of this temple. And the Lord gives Solomon a warning here that this temple can become a heap, can become a, uh, a heap of ruins. That's verse 8. There's a context prior to that. Um, came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. The first time was when Solomon was wise enough to know he wasn't wise and he asked God for the wisdom that he didn't have. And, and uh, now this is the second appearance of Yahweh to Solomon. He said, I've heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me, that great prayer he offered up on behalf of his nation in chapter 8. I have consecrated this house, which you have built by putting my name uh, there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in the integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But... If you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments, my statutes, which I've set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight. So this is a prophetic message and this is a part of the consequences for their rebellion. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Think about that, because there's a pattern that holds true for us today. When God disciplined Israel, do you know what a warning that was for Gentiles around? <laughs> Think about it. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord, and if he spares not his own son. So you're a neighboring Gentile kingdom, right? You're, you're 
some Arameans up there in the desert or wherever. You're a neighboring Gentile kingdom and you see what Yahweh is doing to his disobedient, rebellious people. What do you think he'll do to you? <laughs> right? It's a warning. It's a motivation. See, just like when believers today undergo divine discipline, it ought to wake up unbelievers to say, huh, look at that. God is a loving God, a parent who loves his children and disciplines his children. And uh, I'm not even one of his children yet. What kind of wrath might he pour out on me? See, anyway, it can stand as a as a contrast and a warning. And that's what this says. You can even become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Don't get prideful over a building or over a place. I think I'm going to adapt something out of this text here when we move over there to Cross Park Drive and we dedicate our new church building. And there'll be a lot of celebration. There'll be a lot of rejoicing. And there'll be a lot of food. And we're already planning uh, potlucks and all kinds of stuff and all the celebration we're going to have over there. We also want to recognize that if we don't stay faithful to doctrine, God can burn the whole thing down tomorrow, see. And we better just keep our priorities the way they need to be. All right, Jeremiah chapter 12. Now, Jeremiah is important because he was the uh, weeping prophet, the prophet of desolation, the prophet who uh, had to sit there in uh, Jerusalem and be Yahweh's, uh, I told you so, uh, messenger. <laughs> right. All the other prophets up to uh, Jeremiah kept saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And Jeremiah said, see, <laughs> Moses said it. Ezekiel said it. You know, Isaiah said it. Elijah said it. All right. Well, not Ezekiel. Ezekiel followed. I misspoke. All right. Anyway, Jeremiah chapter 12. Verse seven says, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Think that hurt? You think Yahweh was happy about saying such things? I think this is the most painful thing he ever did up to Calvary. And then, of course, that was even harder. But here it is. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me. Therefore, I have come to hate her. Modern multiculturalists won't like that because, you know, that's hate speech. But it is what it is because God loves what he loves. And hate is a love application. Goes on down. Um, and you can almost see here, many of these are angelic references if you... Uh, Identify them for what they are, the birds and the beasts. And then the shepherds who were supposed to be protective are instead uh, uh, destructive. They've ruined the vineyard, trampled down the field, made my past, uh, pleasant field a desolate wilderness. It has, become, it has been made a desolation, desolate in mourns before me. The whole land has been made desolate because no man lays it to heart. See, when a land mourns, Sin defiles a land and blood defiles a land. And uh, when Cain murdered Abel, the, the land itself cried forth with the blood. And, and uh, here the land itself is mourning because of its desolation. We have a similar expression in different ways. And, um, and I find that interesting because, again, what, uh, 
well, we know that the whole creation groans because of the curse of Adam. Sin itself places that curse of Adam. All creation groans. But here it groans, and in addition to groaning, it actually mourns because of the desolation. Uh, when wickedness defiles it, when blood defiles it, it cries out. And, uh, and I have to wonder, what does the land of the United States uh, sound like these days? Is it, de- is it desolate or approaching that? Are we a land of bloodshed? Are we a land of violence? Are we a land of idolatry? See, they all defile the land. So on the bare heights of the wilderness, destroyers have come. Destroyers have come. And this is, uh, again, Abaddon is the Hebrew term. He is the destroyer and the fallen angels that are unleashed and allowed to wreak havoc. Um, A sword of the Lord is devouring from one end of the land even to another. There is no peace for anyone. They have sown wheat and reaped thorns. You know, you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind in different applications. All right, Ezekiel 36. I'm giving you just a sampling. In fact, you could find pretty much every single prophet addressing these things. Ezekiel 36. How long is this desolation going to last? What I find interesting is that uh, through human effort and some amazing technology and whatnot, there are significant stretches of real estate in Israel today that are blooming. And oftentimes the Jewish people today will cite Old Testament passages saying, behold, the desert is blooming and they're very proud of what they've accomplished. And it is stark. Uh, The differences between the Jewish cultivated land and the Arab continued wasteland see and of course the arabs don't care they wanted a wasteland they hate the jews and they hate the land but um every time a prideful jew says that their scriptures are being fulfilled they're wrong they're wrong because they're not oriented to the person of christ and they are not oriented to the ultimate fulfillment of this which will be now reserved for second advent could have been first advent, but they crucified the Christ and rejected their kingdom. So notice, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, <coughs> I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. Has he cleansed his nation yet? No. The blood of the cross isn't applied to the nation until Armageddon, until the blood is as high as the bridles, the horse's bridles. We're going to see that when Jesus says uh, they will not see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that that is an acknowledgement of Jesus, the Christ, in the tribulation and accepting their king for second advent. So the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste, desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Okay. Now, they're doing things today that mimic that, replicate that. Maybe they foreshadow and anticipate that. But this passage is not being fulfilled. God never requires us to make good on his promises. He will make good on his promises. And he will bring it about on that day when I cleanse you from all your iniquities. In other words, Daniel's 70th seven is the fulfillment of that because that's what brings an end to um, the iniquity. All right. Then the nations that are left, won't be many, Armageddon will kill most of them, 
uh, round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. So who's going to do it? Human effort? Jewish pride? Or Messiah's faithfulness? It's going to be Messiah's faithfulness right there. Of course, there are believing racially Jewish people in Israel today, but it is not a believing nation today. And that should be very clear. Uh, so anyway, you've got it there in verse 34, 35, and 36. Over to Daniel 9. I mentioned this a moment ago. Daniel. I think if more people understood Daniel 9, we'd have uh, <coughs> less confusion. We certainly wouldn't have replacement theology today. But 77s have been decreed for your people. Who were Daniel's people? The Jews. And your holy city. What was Daniel's holy city? Jerusalem. The church is nowhere in this chapter. The church is nowhere in this book. <clears throat> Notice though, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. All of that encompasses what we were just looking at in Ezekiel about uh, God cleansing His people from sin. On that day is when the wilderness will be made inhabited again. Um, you'll note in verse 26, after the 62 sevens, which comes after the seven. In verse 25, you've got seven and 62, which is, of course, 69. So verse 26 says, after the 62 or 69, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Jesus Christ is crucified and has nothing. He does not receive the Davidic throne. And this literally happened on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. The, 62, uh, the 69th seven ended on Monday, March 30th. Four days prior on Palm Monday when he made his triumphal entry. And uh, we'll be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So the, the uh, people destroyed the city and the sanctuary in 70 A.D. There are 37 years in this verse and more. Because the Messiah cut off and have nothing is 33 A.D. And uh, destroy the city and the sanctuary is 70 A.D., 37 years later. And I think it even goes beyond that because its end will come with a flood. And then it, it gets extended even to the end. There will be war. Desolations are determined right up until week 70 can begin. And week 70 will have the most desolation of all. Desolations are determined. And he, who's the he? Well, you back up. The nearest antecedent is the prince who is to come. He, not Messiah the prince, but the prince who is to come, otherwise known as beast or antichrist. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. There's week 70. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice, grain offering, and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. See, all the desolations of 586 were foreshadowing. The desolations of 70 A.D. were foreshadowing. It's not until the desolation of Antichrist temple that it is absolutely 100% total 
desolation. See, that's why, you know, Jesus said not one stone will be will be uh, left standing upon another. All right. Any of you been to Israel and been in Jerusalem? I've never been, but I've, I just know what's there. What do you have there at the Western Wall? You've got a stone on top of another stone. You've got several stones. Why are they still on top of each other? Didn't Jesus say not one stone would remain standing? Yes, he did. He wasn't talking about 70 A.D. there. It's yet to come. A total annihilation, abomination is on the way. Poured out on the one who makes desolate. I'm taking the time to walk you through this because of the bad teaching that's out there that says, oh, well, this is all over and done with. This, this reference here, that was over. That was Antiochus Epiphanes in the Maccabean era. Yeah. Well, aren't you so smart? I'm glad that you're very well versed in the liberal theology of higher criticism and, and all the rest. It's a shame that Jesus was so stupid he didn't understand your understanding of the Scripture. Okay? Because Jesus quoted this passage. Jesus was after Antiochus Epiphanes in the Maccabean era. And Jesus said, it's still coming. So, Jesus knows you're wrong about that Antiochus Epiphanes Maccabean fulfillment. Alright? So, uh, you know, go ahead and enjoy your smarty pants approach to things. I'm just going to stick with what Jesus says. Jesus says the abomination that Daniel said hasn't happened yet. And when it happens, you better be... You better be ready. All right, Daniel 11. This, uh, <clears throat> this actually is the view of Antiochus right here. <coughs> Ahead of time, not after the fact. And uh, if I'm not careful, I'll read this whole thing and spend the rest of our time in this. So I'll let it go. <laughs> but um, there is again, des- abomination of desolation. Antiochus was the foreshadowing antichrist is the fulfillment antiochus was the little greek horn antichrist is the little roman horn they're both mouths uttering great boasts but the greek antichrist little a foreshadows the roman antichrist big a and uh if uh, you want more on that then the daniel series is available and the notes are out there in the hall finally chapter 12 and verse 11 from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. And you've got to do some work on that to understand the time, times, and half a time. What are the 42 months? What are the 1,260 days? And then why does this verse have an extra 30 days beyond that? And then why does the next verse have an additional 45 days beyond the bonus 30 days? So, what, uh, what are those time frames all about? Well, again, get the Daniel notes and uh, review up on that if you care. Because we're not going to be here to see any of it anyway. <laughs> right? We're going to a wedding feast, a wedding supper. We're going to be in glory. Uh, we'll come back at uh, Armageddon and be done with the abomination. And uh, some of those other things there, we might see a little bit of it. But anyway, let that go. Last thing I want to highlight. So desolation is a common theme. Every Old Testament prophet from Moses on was talking about it. Obey the Lord, blessings in the land. Disobey the Lord, discipline. Even to the point of being removed from the land that belongs to you. And a curse upon the land that God has blessed. Until eventually a permanent, eternal, glorious return 
that, uh, that will come when uh, Christ himself is among them. Jesus is no different. Back to Luke 13 now. Jesus is no different because he says, Your house is being left to you desolate. You take the message of Jesus Christ and add it to, put it together with, every other prophet of Israel. He himself is a prophet of Israel. All right? And he says, your house is being left to you desolate. His message is in perfect harmony with Moses and, and uh, Solomon and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Perfect harmony. What is this desolation he's talking about? It's the same desolation Moses talked about and Jeremiah talked about and Ezekiel talked about and Daniel talked about. And what is this you will not see me until message about? It's the same until that Moses talked about, Jeremiah talked about, Ezekiel talked about, Daniel talked about. All right, are you following this? Is it making sense? The until you say is second advent, accepting the king in his glory. So from now on, you will not see me until you say, All right, behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As not just one or two, not just a few individuals, not just some little kids on a, on a Palm Monday morning, the entire nation as a nation is in, is in acceptance of their king. So the pronouncement speaks of his ascension and session until when he says, you will not see me. Same thing he told his disciples, I'm going away and you will not see me. His ascension and session. He's departing planet earth. He will be seated at the right hand of the Father. He will be apart from the visible spectrum that humanity can observe. Until such time as Israel repents and receives the king and kingdom by faith. Until they receive the king and the kingdom by faith. As a nation. Don't confuse this with the fact that yes, uh, some, you know, there were some kids with palm branches. There's a handful. There's a remnant. There's, there's individuals that get saved before then. See, the, the bad mistake, people take this and they say, oh, well, that was fulfilled on Palm Sunday, see, or Palm Monday, if they really work the chronology well, okay? It was not, and I can prove that. We'll see it here in Matthew, here in just a moment. Psalm 118 is an ascension psalm. It's a uh, glorious psalm of celebration. The pilgrims would sing it as they went up to Jerusalem. Psalm 118. And I find it interesting because even this psalm gives you a clue that everything's not hunky dory down the road. I don't know what the Hebrew is for hunky dory, but <clears throat> I think it's in there somewhere. Notice verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected. <laughs> now, of course, in the church, we know all about that, don't we? We have the hindsight, the perspective with New Testament truth, mystery doctrine revealed. We, can, we understand they didn't ahead of time, but God knew they, they were going to reject their king. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What day is that verse talking about? Is that verse talking about uh, 
October 7th, 2009 AD in Austin, Texas? Or is it talking about the stone which the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone, the Lord's doing, marvelous in our eyes? I'm sorry. I just spoiled one of your favorite verses, didn't I? You want to, okay, go ahead and apply it today, apply it tomorrow. Just know that it's a secondary application, all right? Yes, today is a beautiful uh, uh, blessing and treasure, and God's given you a a blessing of today. And it is a day the Lord has made. It's not specifically the day that's mentioned in that verse, but that's all right. You can still rejoice in it and be glad. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, do save, save now. Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. This is what they were singing. And the little kids with the palm branches had capacity to understand it. Hosanna doesn't mean hip, hip, hooray, or or yay, God, or we love you. Hosanna means save now. And it means if you if these if those children on Palm Palm Monday truly had the doctrinal maturity, it is celebrating the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and saying, "Go to the cross and do the work that God the Father has for you to do." All of that tied up in a wonderful Aramaic phrase of "Hosanna, save now." We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, send prosperity. The problem is, of course, when you want the prosperity without the salvation. You want the crown without the cross. So it is in that scope that we see blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. In other words, as believers who understand the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in salvation, the work of Jesus Christ uh, on the throne in reigning and blessing, and you have a perspective on the cross and the crown And until Israel develops that, the Jewish people as a nation still to this day do not accept Jesus of Nazareth as their Christ. He was a first century heretic. All right. In fact, any more of the Jewish folks I talk to nowadays tell me that he was a Pharisee. He was a Galilean Pharisee heretic, which is remarkable since the Pharisees of his day hated him so much. But the Pharisees of today, or the Jews of today, will call him a Pharisee from the first century. Well, theologically, he lined up with most of their positions. I understand why they call him that. Anyway, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with the cords and the horns of the altar. You are my God. I give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. This will not be fulfilled now until second advent. It will not be fulfilled now until second advent. And and they cannot have their kingdom until as a nation they correctly, biblically, doctrinally cite this verse. All right, now in Matthew twenty one nine we see uh these kids in the Palm Monday episode I keep talking about. And, and we'll, we'll detail this more. You either, if this is a Sunday, then you've got a missing Wednesday in your Passion Week. All right. If, uh, if you decide that, no, we've got a day-by-day-by-day day by day narrative of, uh, of what happens here in the Passion Week, the missing Wednesday doesn't make much sense. Okay. And so if you accept that 
we have a day by day by day Passion Week narrative, then uh, you put the cross on Friday, you have the Last Supper Thursday night, you have no missing Wednesday, you've got a Wednesday, a Tuesday, and a Monday all accounted for. You've got a Palm Monday that takes place on uh, March 30th, 33 A.D. And Palm Monday doesn't bother you unless you are so enslaved to the Roman church system where you have to have a sacramental calendar that has all these Holy Sundays for a, uh, you know, a Roman liturgy kind of a thing. All right. If you're not wrapped up on insisting that the triumphal entry had to be on a Sunday, then uh, then you can accept the fact of Palm Monday without any real struggles. All right. So here's Palm Monday. And. um they're approaching Jerusalem, and he dispatches a couple of guys to go into the village and find a donkey there and a colt and uh, bring a fulfillment of Zechariah there at that point. And if anyone says anything to you, then say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. There's a believer there with maturity to understand why the donkey and the colt are ready on that day. This is the, the final day of week 69 on Daniel's calendar. And someone kept track of that. A believer with doctrine had a donkey and a colt ready to go. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What a contrast. Muhammad was a warlord, right? He was a warlord. He was a conqueror. He was a slaver. He was a murderer. He was a bandit. And I shouldn't make any Muslim angry with any of that. It's, that's their own story. They tell the story too. That's just the reality of it. Jesus came humble, mounted on a donkey. And uh, so the disciples go. They find just as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their coat on them. He sat on the coats. And most of the crowd spread their coats on the road and uh, cutting branches from the trees. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, there's your Hosanna. Hosanna to the Son of David. And they paraphrased that psalm we just read, didn't they? They they doctrinally understood it. They digested it. They knew the content. They knew the doctrine. He is their king. He is the Son of David. He is the Christ. And they understood Hosanna means save us and save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're ready for it. Their nation's not, but this handful is. This faithful remnant. Hosanna in the highest. And what's amazing, of course, this record isn't to us, but you go to some of the parallel accounts and they're trying to shut these kids up. <laughs> and Jesus says, you can't shut them up. Try shutting them up and stones will start crying out. Now, the interesting thing is, see, don't take this message in Luke to say, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Don't say, well, there, okay, it's fulfilled, it's fulfilled. Not so, because two chapters later, in Matthew 23, what's Jesus doing? He's giving the same message he gave back in Luke 13. And he says, you know what? Three days ago on Palm Monday they were saying this. But the entire nation needs to say it. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. Okay, This is three days after Palm Monday. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is spoken after Palm Monday. 
So Palm Monday can't be the fulfillment of this. If it happens after Palm Monday, it's looking forward to second advent. See, there it is. And I love the way that we have it twice there uh, so that we have chapter 21. We can compare to chapter 23. And it's obvious that he cannot be prophesying something that happened three days ago. He's prophesying something that the nation will have to proclaim in order for his kingdom to come. And so it is indeed a second advent prophecy at that point. All right. Well, it is 11 o'clock. That is the last point that we have to uh, deal with on that. We move on to Luke 14 in a couple of weeks uh, where he actually goes into a Pharisee's house and has a meal. And uh, wouldn't you know it, Jesus has the worst luck in the world. He's constantly coming across these people that need healing on the Sabbath day. So we'll, uh, we'll deal with that once again in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for your precious promises. And I pray, Father, that more and more believers would get oriented to um, your plan for Israel and your plan for the church and distinguish between them and, and lay claim to your purpose in their lives and quit trying to fulfill Israel's promises, Father. We've got enough promises of our own that are, in fact, greater and more precious promises because in Christ they are yes and amen. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And, Father, I wouldn't trade that for all the earthly blessings Israel will have uh, on the day of the Lord. So, Father, uh, for folks that are uh, confused, folks that are busy today trying to bring about Israel's promises, Father, I just pray that you would uh, gently and patiently uh, open their eyes to the real blessings that are ours day by day. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.